for me, the real estate business and the real estate investments was my way to get ahead and create some wealth in life. And once I became introduced to the multifamily industry, it was kind of game over. I just, I really fell in love, head over heels for the industry. In the multifamily businesses, everything's multiplied, right? So your mistakes are multiplied, your successes are multiplied, everything good's multiplied, everything bad's multiplied. It has been very, very difficult to acquire value-add real estate, and that's probably the main reason why we find ourselves doing a lot more real estate development these days. It's one thing to go into a, a good submarket or a good neighborhood and fix a bad property, but you can't do that if the city's bad itself or if the neighborhood's bad. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. Jeff, welcome to Investor Creator. Hey, Brad, how are you? Doing very well. Appreciate you being with us today. So first, I want to talk about the state of the market. So uh, okay. you have really a different angle than what really every guest that we've had so far has in that you're deep into the multifamily space. But like we've talked about, that's also taken you into the hospitality world, which it seems like people are really running away from in droves when it comes to the crisis that we've had with the virus and the economic impact that we're now seeing. But I just wanted you to get your thoughts on the market in terms of first the multifamily world and then switching gears into the hospitality world. Sure. I mean, it's a uh, boy. I've personally never seen anything like it. It's uh, it's just an interesting time because the devastation or the challenge or the effects of the COVID pandemic are so widespread, but so unique in almost every aspect. And so I think you mentioned, you know, multifamily, uh, you know, that's an area that we've focused on and specialized in since the 90s. And so in our own little world in multifamily, it's, uh, you know, I'd say we've, we're surviving. It's been okay. I mean, we certainly have a lot of residents that are impacted by the virus thus far. Most of them have been able to pay the rent. You know, our collections have maybe seen a slight hit in terms of uh, residents' ability to pay rent. We've worked with a lot of residents and really helped them through the, uh, the difficulties. But overall, I think our you know, our motto has been, you know, business as usual, or at least the effort to try to maintain business as usual as much as possible. And so I think for the most part, that's kept things a little bit more normalized than what you might find in some of the other areas or, or what have you. And so, uh, but it's been difficult. It's been challenging. Uh, you know, I, I read recently that um, only 71, 72% of multifamily residents paid all or portion of their rent last month. And uh, also read in the subsequent article that, you know, here in Florida, which is one of our hottest markets, that uh, about 51% of the uh, Florida renters are just unable to pay their rent. And so, you know, that, that demonstrates some significant challenges to the market. I think that we won't quite understand just how deep and bad they really are until uh, everything kind of starts to flush out. And, you know, with the changes to unemployment, uh, you know, the eviction and uh, and the foreclosure moratoriums and the, fair bear, the forbearances that are in place now, I mean, I think that's covering up or shielding or 
maybe even kicking the can down the road on a lot of a lot of issues that you might not see right away. But um, I mean, let's face it, the entire world was kicked pretty hard by this pandemic. I don't think you could ignore it. I don't think that uh, you could just act like things are going to bounce back. It's going to take a while to recover. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I was researching just the other day and it said 5 million houses in forbearance and another 1.9 million that are not in forbearance, but are at least 30 days late. So we're talking about 7 million single family homes across 50 states that have a, a major, major problem. So let, let me ask it this way. I mean, obviously people, this is probably not the best time to start a hotel but I know you guys are, are in the middle of a, uh, a Margaritaville hotel. Is that right? Right, right. So we've got several hotel projects that uh, are either in pre-development, uh, under construction, uh, or almost complete. And I think that uh, uh, you're right. The hospitality business is probably one of the hardest hit areas of the real estate industry uh, after, the, um, after maybe a couple others. But uh, it's a scary time to be in the hotel business. Now, luckily for us, we own a few hotels. They're unique boutique brands or operations that really can kind of almost double as long-term stay or, or almost as, a, as apartment buildings uh, when times like this occur. And so I think that we've, um, you know, on a personal level, we've been fairly lucky and safe with our hotel developments. Timing has a lot to do with it. I've got several friends and partners and investors that uh, literally celebrated grand openings in February and in March. And, uh, you know, they're, that just wasn't wasn't good for them at all. And, and of course, you know, here in Florida, we've got uh, Orlando, which is, you know, the capital of tourism for the South and, and even for the United States. And so uh, obviously the devastation in Orlando has been tremendous. And predominantly most of those hotels are some real trouble. Yeah. And that makes sense. So, I mean, in terms of your scope of your history, you've, you've done 130,000 multifamily units in your career, and now you're in the hospitality world, but how did all of this start? So how did you get your start in the investing? Great. Well, to be clear, we've the multifamily industry has been our bread and butter, our focus, our specialty since day one. Now that's kind of taken us into some hospitality projects or developments. It's never been our focus. And I wouldn't say that we're invested heavily in hospitality today, but we will do mixed use projects with hospitality components. But predominantly we're after multifamily, either for rent or occasionally a for sale product. But um, I literally got started in high school with the purchase of my first single family rental home. And um you know, I was 17 years old at the time, had no clue what I was doing, didn't know why I was interested in buying a rental home. I just felt it was something that uh, I should have done. My dad was the type of father that if I asked him if I should do something, he probably would have said, sure, go ahead. Didn't matter if it was, you know, climb the tallest mountain, buy the Empire State Building or, you know, try to conquer this or conquer that. He would have probably tried to encourage me to do just about anything as long as it was good for me. And so I remember stumbling upon an ad in the paper one day and uh, picked up the phone and, you know, called the guy, the ad read house for sale, $5,000. And I thought the house was for sale for $5,000. And so the first thing the seller says was, you know, you silly kid, it's $5,000 down. Of course, I didn't even know what that even meant, right? The whole concept of mortgages and seller financing was something that I'd never been exposed to. And so of course I hung up the phone, went and found dad and said, Hey dad, what's this mean? And he says, Oh, you know, he, he gave me the crash course on seller financing and said, well, you should go buy that house, Jeff. And I thought, okay. So I did. Um, and you know, the irony is that that was back in 1994. So 25, 26 years ago, the seller wouldn't let me in the house because he didn't want me to disturb the tenant that was in the house. And you do a lot of single family. So you understand how, how challenging tenants can be. And his words to me were, Hey, I don't want you to bother the tenant, you know, just do a drive by. So I thought, okay, that's normal. That's fine. I did that fast forward 26 years later. I've still never been in the house. 
the same tenants in the house today as it was 26 years ago. Wow. Something breaks in the house, he sends me a receipt, deducts it from his rent. Every year I raise his rent 3%. He's never missed a rent payment. The guy actually has the same job he had 26 years ago, working for a local hotel. And I, I tell that story because that literally, you know, once in a lifetime chance opportunity, that's probably what hooked me on the real estate business and made me think that uh, being a landlord would be easier forever. And uh, I've never had that good of a result ever, ever again in my life. But it's a good story to tell. And I think of it as kind of like your first time experience. What better way to get indoctrinated into the, the world of becoming a landlord, right? Well, that's amazing. I mean, uh, what are the chances of that? And what beginner's luck? I mean, that's incredible. Uh, well, we've had as many as 40,000 units with as many as, you know, 80,000, 90,000 residents. And I, I tell you, the horror stories I can tell you would, would blow your mind. But um, I wish they could all be that good. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. So you got the first deal. It was working out well. At some point, you decided, hey, you know, I can make a career of this. So at what point did you decide, okay, let's scale and let's get into multifamily? Well, I started, you know, I fell in love from day one. I thought it was the neatest thing in the world that you could buy something, you know, put a renter in there and collect the cash flow, right? Back in those days, you know, my math was simple, right? If your mortgage payment was half or less of your rent, then the deal made sense. And so I worked a couple of jobs throughout high school and immediately following high school. And so every time I could save up $5,000 or more, I'd go right back to the same seller who, somewhat like operated a, what I would refer to as like a, the buy here, pay here car lot of homes. So he had about 30 homes that he had bought and sold and repossessed and foreclosed on for probably 20, 30 years, mostly in this small military Navy community. And so when the, the Navy guys would deploy or get transferred, they'd give up the home or he'd take it back or and then resell it. And he kept doing that, I don't know how many times. And so he saw me coming a mile away. He thought, well, Jesus, this kid's never going to be able to pay back these loans and manage these homes. And so you know, every time I'd have a couple thousand dollars, I'd go back to him and buy another house from him until eventually I bought all 30 of his houses. And then he really was upset with me when I figured out how to refinance those with a pretty large line of credit, and which is what gave me access to a lot of equity. And uh, that was just a few years later. And fortunately, I was able to start buying multifamily at that point in time because I ended up with a line of credit with several million dollars in spendable cash. And as we all know, multifamily is a lot more expensive than single family. And uh, that was just a few years later after getting started. But in between that, I had started a, a management company and a construction company that were really meant and designed built to serve my own personal needs in the, the small housing portfolio that uh, I had uh, acquired. And keep in mind, I was only a teenager then. And so I was trying to really just figure out the business. I'd fallen in love with the real estate business. I guess I recognized early on the ability to create wealth. I didn't come from any type of wealth. My, my father was a firefighter. And so those guys didn't make much money back then and probably still don't. But um, for me, the real estate business and the real estate investments was my way to get ahead, create some wealth in life. And once I became introduced to the multifamily industry, it was kind of game over. I just, I really fell in love, head over heels for the industry. The same principles that apply to the single family industry were, were basically just on steroids then. Uh, within the multifamily industries. And I figured out that the, you know, the economies of scale and the inefficiencies at, at scale just presented a tremendous amount of opportunity for improvement. And that was something that I really wanted to figure out how to take advantage of. And so in my early 20s, at 2021 20, years old, is when I refinanced that portfolio of homes and started buying multifamily, just one deal at a time, basically. And that continued for about a 10-year stretch because I really couldn't figure out how to access any additional you know, equity didn't really have a Rolodex of, of wealthy investors or what have you. I could knock on a few doors and raise a few dollars of what I'll call country club capital. But uh, beyond that, I was just kind of recycling my own capital and doing about three to four transactions a year, slowly building a portfolio and slowly building a company. So 
the property management business led to the construction business, which led to the brokerage business, which led to the mortgage banking business. And so we were basically growing the company horizontally as, as fast as we could. I didn't understand the world of investments and syndications and capital markets. And I really didn't begin to understand capital markets until about 2007, 2008, just before the crash. And so that's kind of my, the first 10 to 12, 10 to 15 years in the business. So take us through that first big multifamily purchase that you bought. What did that look like? Gee, so the, it was, um, well, it was a hundred unit deal that uh, was for sale for $30,000. And back then you could get 80% financing. So I, I wrote a check for $600,000 down and I uh, ended up closing on the deal and then quickly accepting some partners into the partnership. The seller needed to move pretty quick and I couldn't raise or I couldn't find partners fast enough. And so I ended up closing on the deal and then inviting them or allowing them to come in later on. And so, you know, we quickly added enough value to that asset, refinanced it at about a five, five and a half million dollar value, pulled out all of our cash and had a little bit of a, a little bit of spending money to go on and do the next one. And that took us about, about nine months. The seller living in Canada at the time. And he just was really unaware of the fact that his rent rates were, were so far in the market that the day we bought them, we bumped them up by about 25%. And um, once we did that on about 25% of the units, the appraisal came back at you know, significantly higher value, which allowed us to refinance the property and um, really take out some of our unrealized gain at the time while retaining ownership of the property. And so to me, I really didn't understand why that was such a phenomenal thing, but the ability to create so much gain, realize a portion of it tax-free, take those, the proceeds or, or the gain and invest it into another asset was remarkable. And so, but without any real additional capital, and again, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just in my, my early 20s at the time. I wanted to do as much and as fast as I could, but I could really only do it about three to four times a year. And so you know, that probably led to anywhere between you know, five to seven, maybe a thousand units of multifamily acquisitions a year for about the first 10 years in a row. That's really incredible. So those value add plays, do you find that those deals are still out there or are they just extremely tough to find? Well, I think they're both. I think they're extremely tough to find, but I think they're still out there. And I think that, you know, every day someone new gets into the business and the business progresses and evolves. And, you know, every day the concept of value add evolves into something new and different. So, you know, it used to be value add was simply raising rents and then it became more of a physical uh, structure play, uh, you know, the aesthetics, the improvements, the repairs, the deferred maintenance, things like that. And then, then after that, it really became, you know, corrective property management operations. And then, you know, today we're focused on the experience as probably, if not equal, close to being equal as a value gain play or part of the value gain play. So the deals are still out there. They're just not as easy as they used to be to find. And, you know, everyone thinks they could just buy an asset, raise rents, but you really got to, you know, not every property supports that. Not every market supports that. And so we failed for the last three or four years to make or meet our acquisition goals every year because it's just really pricing, right? I mean, a lot of times assets today are priced with the value add already plugged into the purchase price. And so, you know, you're having to work just to make them worth what you pay for them. And that's not a real good concept. That kind of defeats one of our core values or principles of acquiring real estate. So it has been very, very difficult to acquire value add real estate. And that's probably the main reason why we find ourselves doing a lot more real estate development these days. Yeah, and that makes sense. So you went through the crash of 08. How did that crash change the multifamily world? Well, I mean, I turned everything in my world upside down. And so, uh, you know, we were humming along just great, thinking that we had the entire real estate investment world, you know, figured out. 
everybody always warns you about the cyclical nature of the economy and the real estate markets and the debt markets and everything else. But I think 2008 caught probably almost everybody off guard. And so even my partners in the business that had been in the business for 50, 60, 70 years had lived through several cycles before. You know, you heard, you know, when I got into the business, all you heard about was the old RTC days and the old investment structures and tax credit structures and things like that. And so, you know, I had this kind of way of feeling like I missed out on all the good days of real estate because I had gotten so late and all these great stories of, of buying discounted and distressed properties or these tax shelter investment partnerships. I mean, all those days were long, long gone. And then in 2008, when the market really started to unravel, especially here in the Southeast, our goal at that point in time, you know, I very naively thought, well, geez, I could almost ignore what everybody else is doing and just focus on occupancy and, and rent collection. And, you know, what did I care? As long as I could just keep my properties occupied and keep the rents collected, then who cares about what value, like how could the values be affected? And boy, was I wrong because, I mean, we saw, whether it was in Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, we saw rent rates drop as much as 40, 50%, in some cases more than that. And um, you can go from, you know, making pretty good debt service coverage overnight to I'm not even coming close. And um, it happened really, really quick. And, uh, and of course, it took us about a year, year and a half to kind of struggle through the initial onslaught of that downturn. But once we figured out how to survive, our goal was to take as much advantage of the opportunities out there. And so in 2009, we kicked off a, a buying spree of, well, on average, just under 10,000 units per year. And so we ended up from 2009 through 2014, I think the account was somewhere around 9,600 on average units per year of you know, troubled, broken, distressed assets, mostly from banks, if not from banks through receivers or the special servicers that were, were selling them on behalf of the lenders. So that seems just like a, a crazy amount of deal flow. So, I mean, what would be like the average unit per transaction? In terms of price per door or size of the, of the property? Yeah, size of the property in terms of units. Yeah, I'd say we would buy anything between one and 300, one and 400 units in size. I mean, we bought a couple of properties that were over a thousand units. Each, and that was obviously on the extreme large side, a couple of the portfolios that we were buying. You know, the, the tricks that the banks picked up was they wanted to move massive amounts of product. And so they would take a couple of small properties that were in some small markets and couple them with some big properties in some big markets, and then some nice stuff with some ugly stuff. And they'd package it all up and force you to buy it all. And so we would we'd buy it all. And, um, you know, we'd do 10, 15, 20 assets at a time in sometimes as many as five, six, seven cities. And so uh, there was a pretty wide range of assets that we were acquiring. But, you know, our motto back then was we really sought out to institutionalize the, the world of C-class multifamily. So the more troubled, the more broken, the more distressed it was, the better it was for us because that was the more value we could grow or gain or create, you know, with the asset. So if you take on, say, a 400-unit C-class property that is entirely mismanaged, like everything's broken, how long does it take to turn that around? I mean, it seems like... So like... I, we just bought a property where we can't get in. We bought it this morning. We can't get into the property. There's tenants there. There's pit bulls out front, sure. you know, like the, the whole thing. And it's like, okay, well, that anything works at a price in my world. seems like you're dealing with stuff 100 times more expensive than what we're dealing with at a minimum. How long does it take to stabilize that? Well, I mean, I think it depends on a lot of different factors, right? How bad it is, the time to, to repair and create, you know, rent-ready units, the market, how many residents or how many prospects how successful can your advertising and marketing be? And so you know, our goal is we always, within the first 30 days, we wanted to ramp up production so that the second 30 days, we were leasing a unit a day. And so that meant we were delivering a rent-ready unit a day and leasing a, a unit a day. So that means if we bought a 
a 300 unit property, in theory, it can be stabilized uh, at a rate of 30 units per month, basically, throughout the process, right? And so in theory, it takes 10 months, but there's a lot of move in, move outs. And, and so you've got to factor that in. So, but in theory, within about 18 months, we could perfect the operations of just about any property out there on the market. So across 100,000 plus units, I'm sure that you have some stories. And I'm sure you have some really great stories and some really not great stories. What sticks out in your head as like one of the, the ones where the property was just so much worse than what you thought, or you just got blindsided by something you didn't know? I mean, what kind of comes to mind? Well, we once, oh geez, there's a lot of those types of stories, but we once acquired about a 2,200 unit portfolio in Atlanta from, it was a short sale. So it wasn't quite from the bank, but it really wasn't quite from the, the seller either. I mean, the seller, sure. we went non-refundable and had about a two week period to close, maybe a three week period to close. And the minute we went non-refundable, the seller abandoned the property, the bank abandoned the property. And so we had about three weeks there in the South part of Atlanta where literally, you know, the inmates were running the asylum as they say. And so by the time we got there, realized that, I mean, it was complete chaos. And these things were in some pretty rough shape. And it was in the middle of the downturn. And so, you know, all this stuff that you really don't want to deal with was present there. And so it took a, a little bit of extra horsepower to get it cleaned up. But, uh, you know, for example, that portfolio itself, I want to say the debt on that portfolio, the day we bought it was about $76,000 per door. I think we paid a little less than $10,000 per door per, per unit for the property itself. Wow. You know, the bank took one heck of a haircut. The, the sellers lost all their equity. And we probably had to invest about $25,000 per unit to make it worth back to about $75,000 per door. Turned out to be a great investment for us. But, but the things that were happening on site when we bought the property would just would make anyone's skin crawl. Do you think that those kinds of deals are going to come back if we hit recession in the next year? You know, I, I worry that they could. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, I think that the market itself is just as fragile as it was back in 2008 going into the downturn. I mean, you've got a lot of sponsors out there that have very little skin in the game and um, they're highly levered with all different types of debt, whether it's you know, your traditional you know, senior debt, then you've got mezzanine debt and preferred equity and even some other sponsor capital GP type loans in place. And so I think you've got four or five different pieces of the capital stack that are going to be clawing for the deal. Will we ever make it back to the, the lender or to the open market like they did in 2008? Maybe not as much, but I think that there's going to be some real challenges. I mean, we've ramped up significantly over the last several months in preparation for the ability to grow our organization substantially like we did back in 2008. In 2008, we went from about 100 employees to over 1,000 employees in about 14 to 18 months later. And so that was a really, really big growth spurt for us. And so we we hope to be able to do some of the same type of growth here over the next one to two years. Interesting. So let me ask you this about just specifically on properties. Is there a certain thing that would just disqualify a property completely? So I have a friend of mine has maybe a thousand units and, and he says, Brad, if we have a flat roof, I'm not buying. That's a great example. I mean, there's a lot of that type of stuff, right? That make that really kind of makes you wonder why they would build a building with a flat roof is beyond me, right? And they're still doing it today, which is baffling. You know, back in 2015, we made a conscientious evolution within the organization that we quit buying C-class multifamily just because a lot of those things that we didn't want to deal with any longer, the flat roofs, the crime, the drugs, the, you know, the society issues or the systemic violence, all that stuff that just makes your skin crawl and you could create a lot of success, but it was just a never ending battle. So we really 
sought to uh, change the organization almost overnight with a push of a button, a complete reinvention of the organization with a real flight to quality over quantity, just because we didn't really want to focus on some of those very, very challenging, you know, neighborhoods or submarkets or, or properties and flat roofs is an example. But in some cases, you know, the, the city itself or the submarket itself is just in such bad a shape that, you know, it, it's one thing to go into a, a good submarket or a good neighborhood and fix a bad property, but you can't do that if the city's bad itself or if the neighborhood's bad. You can't fix an entire neighborhood with just one property. Those are probably some of the things that um, I'd probably be most cautious about for um, either new investors or even you know existing investors about you know understanding the submarket and understanding just what direction it's headed in. You can't fix cities. You can't fix neighborhoods. You can only fix properties. So I'm basically a single family guy. So I don't have many rentals. Most of what we do, we buy and we own our finance. And a lot of the audience, they're single family people. But a lot of people, I think, look at the multifamily world as being like the next level. So how does someone you feel bridge the gap between, well, you know, we're flipping a dozen houses a year, a few dozen houses a year to, okay, let's look at taking on a hundred unit multifamily. How does someone begin to bridge that gap? That's exactly what I did, right? So for me, it was, um, it was the next logical step. And so I probably over the years have had 30 to 40, maybe 50 partners that uh, have created successful single family, either fix and flip operations or rental operations. And naturally, you know, really wanted to capitalize on the economies of scale that I mentioned earlier. And so they wanted to take that, that next step. And so we've helped them do so. I mean, I think that uh, understand, you know, in, in the multifamily businesses, everything's multiplied, right? So your mistakes are multiplied, your successes are multiplied, everything good is multiplied, everything bad is multiplied. So you just really got to be careful and understand the differences between the two. And I would always suggest partner with somebody who knows what they're doing, do a few deals first, understand the operations from top to bottom like you do single family and, um, and take your time. Like don't rush into it, right? There's no reason to uh, you know, jump in with both feet. Just buy a small property with a partner who knows how to operate it. Make sure you pick and choose your partners carefully. But um, I think that uh, it's a natural progression and I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think that uh, I wouldn't want to scare anyone away from it because I think it's a, it's a good business decision. Jeff, appreciate you very much being with us. For those that are interested in reaching out to you, how can they do that? Uh, probably the best way is the website, uh, which is uh, www.theclotscompanies.com. Very good. And we will put that in the show notes. Appreciate you guys being with us and we will catch you next time on Investor Creator. Thanks, Brad.